it's going to take a village to raise this leader. And, you know, it should have probably never been on the onus of the leader themselves anyways, because things are too complex in our world to just have one person be able to handle the new role. And that was Jane Helford from Bolt Transition, and you will hear more from her on today's episode. Welcome to the other 99%. Hello, everyone. My name is Steve Whittington, and I'm your host. According to Economic Development Canada, 99.8% of all employer businesses are small to medium enterprises. Small to medium enterprises are defined as having less than 500 employees. This podcast is dedicated to exploring strategies, tips, and training for creating success as a small to medium enterprise. On today's episode, Jane Helford, co-founder of Bolt Transition and president of Helford Consulting, provides insights on leadership transition and why the need for leadership transition is growing. Jane has a foundation of professional skill honed from being a chartered accountant, regulator, corporate director, entrepreneur, and community volunteer. Layered on top of that foundation are the strategic leadership skills she demonstrates in her current business ventures and during her seven years as CEO and executive director of the Institute of Chartered Accountants. Her passion includes speaking, teaching, and facilitating on the topics of leadership and executive transition. Enjoy the conversation. Tell us about yourself and what you do in your industry. Well, I'd like to say to people that I'm a recovered accountant, which is not exactly a typical term, but what it really means is that I spent the first 10 years of my career as a chartered accountant, and I loved serving the owner-managed client space. And then what does a a CA do for a good time? Well, you become a regulator. So I did that for the next 10 years, and I was the CEO of the Institute of Chartered Accountants for seven. And uh, somewhere along that journey, I started to realize that I needed something more creative. And when you're a regulator or an accountant, being creative isn't really in the job description. So I decided that I needed to figure out a new direction in my career. And that's uh, sort of how I ended up in the in the business that I'm in today. So you were a regulator, you were an accountant, and you said you did, you became a regulator for fun. Uh, and <laughs> so what, like, you, you ended up in the business that you were in today. So was there like a spark, a aha moment that got you in that direction? Well, uh, when I was a regulator, I knew that I was working too hard and I needed to actually step out of that career to figure out the next thing. And so I did that in early 2013. And at that time, I'd committed to myself to take six months off. I guess it was my self-imposed sabbatical. And I was pretty sure that I'd spend a couple months, you know, traveling, doing fun things, resting, and then go back and get a long-term employment job. You know, I really only had two 10-year career jobs and I thought that was the next step. Well, somewhere along about month three, Uh, I started to investigate for my own personal interest a few different businesses. One was urban farming, and then one was actually a consulting practice in a space that I didn't know too much about. And for all kinds of reasons, neither of those uh, purchases came through. And I started to realize, hey, I don't have to wait around for somebody else. I can start to make my own business. And that was really what sparked me to say, okay, I'm going to build myself a business. What's it going to be based on? And what am I going to do next? And that was really the catalyst. So I found that by uh, fall of that year, I had accidentally met my now business partner and we started to pursue the what's next question. Tell us about what was next, because you're the uh, founder or co-founder of Bolt. Yeah, so Bolt actually came out of, uh, I guess it was a bit of an experiment between my business partner, Andrea, and myself. 
we had been introduced by a mutual friend and he had said, well, you have a lot in common. And we had a few coffees together and we could definitely tell we had something in common, but we didn't really have a outlet for it. So we actually decided to do a research project together on leadership transition. And through that project, we realized that it's a sector that has a huge problem in it, but it actually doesn't seem to have any service providers providing solutions. And so after we convinced ourselves there would be a market there by doing research, talking to people in that space, we started to realize that we could build an approach that would help organizations and senior leaders transition knowledge and do so in a way that's really productive. And that was really the birth of the business was those first clients that step forward and says, I know we have a problem. Can you help us? And that was really where we all started. So define that problem. Expand on that. Yeah, so what it is, and everybody's faced this, um, if you're the new person coming into an organization, you often get a warm welcome. People are excited about you. They've seen your resume. And then somewhere at the end of the first day, people kind of say, well, you're on your own. You know, Nobody actually says that to you, but you've got your computer, you've had lunch with people, and then you're left to figure out whatever it is you need to do in your job. And statistically, what's been found is that 40% of new leaders fail in the first 18 months. And that's shocking enough. But then when you realize that that statistic's been the same for 15 years across North America, we knew we had a system failure because that's a lot of great people, great organizations and good intentions that was still creating this failure. So we basically decided that we wanted to take that 40% down to something much lower and change how organizations in Canada first and then North America actually deal with leadership transition. So why why is it forty percent are failing? Is is there is it lack of onboarding, lack lack of support? What's is there a root cause that you've identified? Yeah, you know, I, I think a lot of it is um I guess a bunch of myths that have piled up over time and you know, people are people, they de- tend to have their own behaviors and their own habits. But when we actually built out the business and our name is actually an acronym and the acronym stands for the board, the organization, the leader and the team. And that was meant to capture the idea is, you know, who is responsible for a new leader's success or a departing leader's good transition? And it's all of those people. So the board or the boss, whoever's ultimately in charge, uh, the organization being systems and processes the leader themselves, whether you're arriving or departing, and the team around that leader. And so if we looked at a holistic approach, then we could actually cut off the assumptions that people make about new leaders and departing leaders. And we could also put in place sort of low effort activities for those people so that they can first personally own their part of the success, but more importantly, be able to give the new leader or the retiring leader um, assistance and, and appropriate support for their roles. So that would be one of the reasons you've you unpacked a, a lot of work there, and you you said you give them low effort. So what are some of those low effort uh, tasks that you give people to help with the transition? Well, you know, I, I think everybody's uh, experienced the new boss syndrome, right? You hear your boss is leaving. And then you keep thinking, well, I might not like the new boss and maybe I'm going to have to go get a new job. So most employees kind of get into the space where they're waiting for the new boss to be named. And then depending on how it goes, they might polish up their resume and go somewhere else. And so what we do in those situations where the new boss hasn't been named, but somebody's leaving, we'll actually work with the 
closest people to that person leaving and say, you know what, you may not know who your next boss is. But what you can do in that time is assemble things that are really important for the next person to know. You know, what are the status of projects? Um, how does work get done here? What's your personal strengths that your new boss would need to know about? You know, what what is it that makes your team work? And things like that really help people um, give them a productive project to do while they're waiting for the new boss to be named or for them to arrive. And so it's really things like that that, you know, it's not a really additional work to what they do, but it's actually being thoughtful or documenting or preparing briefing notes on the things that they already know. So how far in advance do you go into an organization before the leadership transition occurs? Ideally, we would love to work with an organization as it prepares to see its leader leave. So let's say three months in advance of the departure day, but it could even be longer depending on the complexity. Uh, And what that gives us is a time to get to know the organization because some of the keys to success are really around those things that people understand, but they aren't documented, like culture and internal politics, key customer relationships, risk management, things like that. And so if we can be there before the leader departs, we can actually leverage their knowledge and the good working dynamic that they will likely have with their team and with people above them. And then as that new leader is named uh, through search and selection, which is actually something we don't do at all, then we can then start working with the new leader before they step foot in the organization so that they can come in and magically understand the culture, politics, and some of those key priorities. And so once they, they arrive, they really hit the ground running and they're able to be more productive faster. And most most times what we hear from people is at the end of month one, their new leader, they can't believe it's only been a month because we've compressed the, the learning curve for that person. Sure. Now, do you work for like how, what do you define as a leader? Uh, basically, our, our work needs to be in a space that has enough complexity to it. So, you know, as much as anybody that uh, titles in organizations are a bit misleading. So, you know, in one organization, a manager may be a very complex job. In other places, it may not be. So I would say that um, if there's complexity because, let's say, the person is senior enough in their role, so they might be um, an executive in, in the organization or leading a large team, or there may be something about their role in itself that's very complex. So we're working with a client now, very small organization. There may only be 40 employees there. But this person has such an extensive external network that if they mess up as an organization on the external view of this leader's departure, the organization may be permanently harmed. Now, is most of your uh, most of the folks you work with uh, in the small to medium enterprise space, or are you are you working with large firms as well? Like, what's the target where you're where you're focusing on? You know, uh, when we first started the business, we thought we would work with the large organizations because of the complexity. So that was really where we started. But since then, we've worked for uh, small companies, private companies. We've worked in the not-for-profit space, and we've worked in the public sector space. And so I'm really proud of the fact that our approach has sort of transcended the size of the organization or the ownership structure. And so to me, that's starting to indicate we're, we must be getting to the root cause because we're seeing the symptoms everywhere in all those organizations. And our approach, even though it gets scaled a bit, depending on the size, it's still helping people do and achieve more. 
Well, considering that over 99% of uh, private enterprises are small to medium uh, in Canada, you'd think, well, that's you know, there's a lot of folks that are going to have leadership transition coming up, and and that uh, this is one of the things that uh, I think is a challenge that we're facing. Uh, there's been writings by many folks uh, about uh, the leadership gap coming, and you know, I've I've uh, your stat: 40% of leaders fail in the first 18 months, and then we just look at the the generation challenges that we have just just by the numbers. You know, the boomers, uh, which uh, right now, according to uh, an article uh, in the Globe and Mail, are uh, 31% of the workforce, Xers are 31% of the workforce, and then the millennials are 35% of the workforce. Uh, but the size of those generations, uh, Xers are quite smaller than the boomers. And uh, the other interesting thing is that not everybody wants to be a leader. So if you don't have as many people coming up and they all don't want to be leaders uh, and you need more because it's a bigger generation leaving, like what do you what are you seeing in in the work that you do uh, in regards to a, a leader a potential leadership gap coming and do you have any ideas about how future leaders can meet this challenge or I guess uh, society industry can meet the challenge uh, ahead of us? Well, I, I totally agree with what you just said because I experienced that myself. I became a CEO at 33, and my tenure in that role ended when I was 40. But I had followed somebody who was I don't know 25 years my senior. And we didn't even have a transition. He was gone before I took on the role. So not only was I less experienced in my career and in life, I also didn't have anybody to mentor me into the role. So it was a big personal challenge. It was a big professional challenge. And it was a public-facing role. So a lot of people watching. And so to me, that's a little bit where my inspiration comes from. And you're absolutely right. Now with our clients, what we see is, you know, leaders are generally leaving the workforce you know, mid-60s, and the people coming in below them are in their 40s. And and the role normally is a huge incremental step up in their career. And so bigger politics, um, maybe a public image now, and things like that where, you know, they're supervising people that are now older than them. And there's all kinds of ways that somebody can um, fall in a bit of a hole on that and may not be able to get themselves out. When you look at that, it's like it's we have a complex workforce emerging. Uh, boomers are wanting to work part time and stay in the workforce longer, uh, but no longer be in the um, the leadership role. And and then you've got, as you said, these forty year olds taking taking over, which may not have the skill sets or the experience to to manage the challenges that they have to then tackle. What so you you feel like the reason you started this organization is that transition is the big mitigating factor that can help uh, uh, meet this uh, meet this challenge? Absolutely. It's almost like it's going to take a village to raise this leader. And, you know, it should have probably never been on the onus of the leader themselves anyways, because things are too complex in our world to just have one person be able to handle the new role. But I think now because of that gap in knowledge and experience is even more essential to bridge that gap. And so that's where, you know, we say if the, ex- the exiting leader can help leave behind a really solid understanding of uh, important things that aren't written, like especially around the culture. You know, who in the organization gets things done? Uh, you know, why do things work? Why do they not work? What is it about this new leader who can actually break some of the um, bad habits or bad behaviors that go on? And things like that where all of a sudden the person, because they're new, can actually stake that advantage 
And that will compensate in some ways while they go through the learning curve about their industry or their role or their new responsibilities. So we have to get them to offer up something new. But I think um, one of the other questions that you asked earlier was also really important. It's like, can, can people actually grow to the leadership challenge, especially when there's that kind of significant gap? And I have great confidence that people can. But I also know that it takes hard work. And that's where, you know, even an awareness of this next generation, both generation X and Y, is going to be really important to help them understand that, you know, you need to own your leadership potential and you have to discover, you know, what are you great at? How are you going to learn more? Where are you going to ask for help? Because if people can't own that they actually have their own leadership gaps that need to be filled, they probably not be able to stretch as far as they need to go in the time or in the opportunity that they've been given. So I think that ownership piece will help both Gen X and Gen Y fill these really important roles that the boomers are going to leave open. Yeah, that's a good point. And there are a bunch of stats uh, about uh, millennials, how uh, there's a big percentage of them. I, I think it's 38% or 42%. So a, a massive amount of them uh, that feel that they are leaders. Uh, but then when you look at uh, how many millennials are in, I, I guess, traditional leadership roles, it's like there's this cap. Like, so 40% of you feel you're leaders and, you know, 5% of you are in a leadership role. Uh, and so, so that's interesting in itself. So, uh, there's the question that, um, millennials are, wanting to be leaders uh but uh and feel that they're almost entitled to feel like they should be leaders and i hate using that term but um are you seeing like that kind of pressure in what you're doing like so you get a transitioning leader in that's a boomer and then you'll have uh xers in between and you've got millennials that are bubbling up and maybe not receptive to a new leader because they feel that they should be the leader or like what what kind of uh I guess generation uh, conflicts are you seeing in the transitions that you're you're executing on? Yeah, I, I really see that. And one of the things that I like to do is think back to when I was that age. What did I think? And you know, I think as you age, you realize that you know less and less because there's too much to know. And so one of the things I do with younger leaders, those that are sort of in the Gen Y and maybe the the late Gen Xers, is to try to get them to do a self discovery about their um, their view of the world. You know, recently I was working with a, a young young future owner of this company and we used a, a disc leaders assessment. So it's just one of the many tools out there on the market. But what I was able to show him was uh, where he was naturally strong as a leader and where he really struggled. And, and, you know, there were interesting, you know, scales or competencies that you know, he may not have thought about, for example, uh, one of the things that he was very strong at is he would seek counsel from other people. But then he would have a behavior where he actually would uh, not communicate his decisions. And so, you know, the strength about seeking counsel is excellent, but he also needed to know and showcase where he needed to improve his own approach to leadership. So you're right. When I first started working with him, he thought he was an entitled leader that should move forward into ownership. And the other owners were not pleased with that kind of attitude. And at the end of our journey together, he said directly to the other owners, I actually had no understanding about the scale of ownership here, the responsibilities. And I probably came across as a jerk. And he had. But but. 
He was able to recover from that by going through self-awareness. And now the other owners can work with him to call out some of those things that can hold him back. Because he's got a huge amount of technical te- technical excellence. He's got a great personality, very hardworking. But it was going to be this uh, blind spot of his that was really going to hold him back in his career. So not everybody gets that chance to work with others to say, okay, you can be the leader you think you already are. But let's start from where you are and move forward. Well, I'm reflecting on this conversation. This is fascinating. And this gives me hope uh, because there's there's a lot of millennials coming. And uh, if they can meet the challenge, uh, that's great because that's we really have to look to the millennials to, to be that, that next push in our society. You go in, you, you basically you assess the situation, you apply tools to help with the transition, and, and part of that is you, you basically help coach up upcoming leaders. Uh, you get the organization prepared for this leader. Uh, and then uh, how long does, we talked about sort of stuff before, how long does the transition last, like so from day one, how long are you involved after uh, after they start? Yeah, so we'd like to be involved for 90 days or 120 days after the person walks in on their first day. And so what we'll do is use some uh, metrics and tools to give the leader feedback on those 30, 60, and 90-day increments and 120 if they'd like. And it's not feedback on their performance per se. It's about feedback about others' understanding about how their transition is going. So we'll ask questions that will indicate, you know, where do you think this new leader can offer more of their background information? Or what now that you understand this person, what more can you offer as support to them? Because sometimes people miss things that are obvious. Uh, you know, one example of something that isn't done very well is that nobody will introduce the new leader to the external network that they need to know. And that may be because they assume they already know everybody in that network or they assume somebody else is doing it. So even taking somebody to a networking event and, you know, introducing them as your new leader is really invaluable. So I think it's things like that where if we can go start through that 30, 60, 90 day period and give feedback um, to the new person, that's helpful. But we also try to look at it from the other direction and say, can this new leader give feedback to the organization about how their transition is going? So we'll ask questions such as, you know, are you getting the information that you need when you need it? in a format that is helping you. And and the idea there is that we believe that leadership transition is actually an organizational competency. And so if part of our legacy with our work is that this organization does their future transitions better or more thoughtfully, then I'll feel like we are making a difference because we can't be everywhere. So if we can have organizations getting more competent, then we can move on to different organizations and make a bigger difference. It sounds like a, a lot of what you're doing is um, you're, you're you're making people responsible for the quality of the leadership of the organization. Would that be a good summary? Yeah, yeah, and 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 being embracing the complexity of it. So it's not something to be feared. It's something that they're very familiar with. It's just a way of putting words to something that. You know, in our Canadian ways, we just wouldn't want to tackle it because it might feel awkward or it may not be polite. And so we just try to take away some of that um, just wasted energy that gets in the way. Sure. Now, we've mentioned that there's a lot of leadership transition coming. 
Do you feel like what percentage of companies do you think are receptive to this uh, planning for transition? Do you feel like it's like everybody's sort of uh, thinking, okay, yeah, we we got to get on top of this. It's now this is the hot topic for a lot of organizations, or is it still something that you're really pushing and this is a new idea and people are slowly coming around to it? Well, I'd say there's a lot of confusion out there by a bunch of terminology. So, you know, you hear about succession planning and you hear about executive coaching and, um, you know, executive search and selection, those kinds of things. And so, you know, the first thing that we found is that we have to explain where we fit in that spectrum. And so, you know, one of the analogies I like to use is that, you know, if you're picking a relay race team, picking the people of the team and figuring out who's running first, second, third and fourth, that's succession planning. And so that's the long term growing your people, trying to figure out who needs to be in what seat. So we don't do that. What we do is we're actually only helping the organization hand the baton. And so what we're trying to focus on is saying, you know, this is a strategic opportunity for an organization to hand over knowledge and reputation and productivity. And if we can be a part of that handing of the baton that many more milliseconds faster, this organization can better lead and better win. And so what I found as we've talked to organizations is if I can explain it like that or if I can explain some of the challenges, people can relate to that. But what we haven't found is that a lot of organizations are not thinking about strategic handovers as something that they need to pay attention to. So they're grooming their people a lot better now than they were five or 10 years ago. You know, there's lots of reliance on executive coaching, executive search, and that's all great. But the actual few months before and after new leader is really a space that isn't even being talked about yet. So when I get to say it's people, they get it because most people have experienced it one way or another. And, and that's where the challenge is for us right now is to say to organizations, you know, how are you planning the handover? And once you explain it, they get it. But a lot of people actually just don't see that blind spot. You would think with a stat of 40% of leaders fail in the first 18 months that more, and that's been the last 15 years you claimed? Yeah. You'd think more people would be getting it if you've got that kind of stats. <laughs> Absolutely. And, you know, it's, even if in a cocktail party setting, you know, once you talk to people about what we do, everybody's seen it. It's either been them and them really having to struggle to survive, or they've been on the board and they've seen a failure of a senior executive, or just, you know, rumor goes around town about people who didn't make the 18 months. And and so it's prevalent everywhere, and it's just people weren't seeing what was right in front of them. Well, this uh, this has been this is a fascinating topic, and you've really just taken a, a real, real thin uh, slice of uh, the leadership spectrum of all the different things that are required, and you've you've focused in on it to try to increase the effectiveness of uh, leaders in uh, in industry, and that's uh, you know I applaud you for that because I am pa- very passionate about uh, this topic and think that uh, we need to do more. So I want to talk about you for a sec. Uh, you know you've you've gone off and you've you've gone away from the uh, traditional career path from uh, you know at a young age you were a C- CEO of a, a public uh, facing organization, and you've you've tackled this uh, niche uh, topic uh, and uh, become, a, I would say, a leader, uh, a thought leader in, in this space. So do you have any daily rituals that keep you focused? And where did you get or where do you get your drive from? Yeah, that's a good question. And, uh, you know, I think that's evolved a lot. 
you know, giving myself the luxury of a sabbatical was really helpful because it does give you the chance to step out of the rat race, so to speak, and really ask yourselves, what am I great at? And how am I going to give that to the world? And so as I went back and we built the business, I really had to focus on where my strengths are. And first of all, it was defining it, but also, you know, being vulnerable and left to say, you know what, I'm actually terrible at the following things, or this is where we need to hire somebody to backfill me. And thankfully with my business partner, where some of the, I, my weaknesses are, are actually her strengths. So there's a lot of that, but you know, I think that um, I, even though I've helped entrepreneurs for the first 10 years of my life, I don't think I really understood how hard it was to be an entrepreneur. And so there's lots of long days and intense days and worrying about cash flow and all those sorts of things. And so when those days were happening and I kept feeling like I was getting more and more tired, I actually would turn to, um, I guess, leadership uh, thinkers you know, like Darren Hardy or John Maxwell. And I'd listen to an awful lot of audio or video on theirs because it gave me that grounding to realize that other people struggle with entrepreneurship, other people struggle with leadership, and it's a journey. There isn't a destination. And so once I was able to think through that, I could take personal responsibility for my uh, daily behaviors and improving myself, leveraging what I'm great at, getting rid of the things I'm terrible at, then I, I really was able to um, push through some of those darker moments. And I think that that's one thing that I've really done consistently for the past couple of years is that, you know, when I'm feeling weary about the, the the challenges of owning a business, I actually will turn to some of that audio for sure and listen to it and listen to it in my car, listen to it when I drive, uh, you know, walk the dog, things like that. It's just really grounding for me. So I think that that's, that's a lot of it. I've also had to really ask myself tough questions about when do I get my best work done? And it's actually first thing in the morning. So I'll get up in the morning and, and work on my favorite projects, my top priorities before I'll ever really deal with the email or take phone calls. And I found that that one hour or two hours, depending on the luxury of the day, uh, will really be my mo- most productive time. Because once I step foot into a meeting or into the office, you know, you're still a little bit of a cork on the ocean. And I, I, I personally struggle with getting um, control back on my time after I kind of leave the leave the first part of my day. Out of curiosity, when do you typically start the first part of your day? <laughs> well, it used to be later, but on January 4th, I decided that I could get up an hour earlier. So I've been getting up at 5. And so I'd say between 5 and 7 in the morning are my most productive hours. And... Uh, a whole backstory on why it was five o'clock, but I would have to say that after I got over the first month and feeling that this was not a human time to get up, uh, I've actually really, really benefited from that discipline, and I'm quite honestly shocked by how much it's made a difference. There are days where I get more work done before 8 a.m. than the rest of the day. Absolutely. I mean, you're you're doing things in your workspace, and you're communicating with your team, and you could there's always all kinds of value in that, but actual deep work, deep project work, it's uh, it's at least once a week before 8 a.m. I've been more productive than I will be the rest of the day on that kind of work. So it's good to hear there's others. Well, it's it's actually quite common. Get up early. You, uh, a lot of successful people get up early and get stuff done. Uh, the last uh, guy in the podcast, I think he says he gets up at 4.30 every day, and uh, I get up at 5, 5.30, so 4.30 is just a, a smidge too early for me. But I would say one of the things that um, has really been helpful for me about getting up and getting those first couple hours myself is that 
I'm actually a really deep introvert, but I just have a very social side to me. So people, when they see me in the community, will think I'm very extroverted. But I do need actually that time by myself in the quiet to do thinking things or feel grounded. And so the more I can own my own introvertedness, the the more productive I can be. So we've talked about how uh, you have daily rituals to keep you focused and where you get your drive from. Is there anything, you know, big picture wise in your industry that uh, bothers you and keeps you up at night? Uh, any Anything that worries you or or keeps you up at night because you're thinking about it, you're so excited about it? Oh, well, the excited part, I'm, I'm usually pretty good about getting on paper because I find if I can write it down, and usually it's physically writing it down, I can set it aside and, and sleep all right. You know, the things that I worry about are probably more typical business owner things. You know, do we have too much work or too little work? Uh, will we have the right staff and the right timing? And I think that's it's fun, but... It, you know, I had an executive coach in my life for a long time, and one of them said to me, Jane, you need to learn the difference between worrying and caring. And and I come from an entire, you know, bloodline of warriors, so that's a very um, good talent of mine. And what she meant by that was people who worry just keep thinking and thinking and thinking about things, but people who care think about them and say, what am I going to do about it? And so when I catch myself in that spin of worrying, which I can do very naturally, I have to say, so how am I going to care and do something about this? And so when I think that's really helpful because there are things you start to say, I do or don't have control over. I do or don't have influence over. And for those things that you don't have control over, I have to just stop worrying about them um, or pay attention to them, but not allow them to consume me because there was a different part of my life that I could very much um, use my energy to, to worry and obsess about things, which really took you off your A game. And so I've, I've had to differentiate that for myself. That's great advice that uh, any leader should listen to. You know, don't worry, care. I, I yeah. like that. I, I'm, I'm going to use that. What is next for Jane and Bolt Transition? Well, I think that uh, we really are mission-driven. We really want to help organizations across the country and maybe across North America learn this and do this differently with or without us. And so I think what we are uh, challenged to figure out is how do we get our message out farther? Uh, personally, one of those things that I love to do is actually I live, love to do public speaking. You know, someday maybe I'd love to write a book or do things on, online. And I think, you know, the more we can make what we do accessible to different people, uh, that, you know, different levels of complexity, different locations, the more I'm going to feel like, you know, what we're doing is really mattering to people. Because we do, we do have the pleasure of working one-on-one -on -one with those leaders. I can see how it helps transform their lives. For those that are going into organizations, they just get more confident and more productive. And for those that are actually leaving their careers, there is an amazing time where they'll all hit a personal wall. And, it, and it's not pretty. And, and it feels like such an honor to be part of their lives at that moment where, where they're realizing that they're letting go of one thing. But more importantly, they're actually moving towards something else. And so it feels like um, there's a lot more we can offer the world and, and the people in particular, and we just need to figure out how to do that. Jane, that's great stuff, and uh, I have, uh, I'm inspired listening to this, and uh, I know I'll, I'll listen to this again and make notes for uh, the organizations I'm involved in. Where can people find out more about you and your organization? 
Well, probably the best place is on our website. We're at bolttransition.com. So just make sure Bolt has uh, got two T's in it. So B-O-L-T transition.com. And I think that you know, that's the best place to reach us. And I think that uh, over the year ahead, you'll start to see more things up on the website around our thoughts and how we can stay in touch with each other. Thanks for listening all the way to the end of another episode of The Other 99%. I'm your host, Steve Whittington, and I hope you enjoyed the show.